I'm so glad you joined us today. Open your Bibles or your Bible apps to Luke 4, verse 31. In today's study, we'll walk through a longer passage, stopping every few verses to make comments. And I really believe you'll get more out of it if you actually have your own Bible open and are not just listening to me read mine. Follow along with us as this summer we're studying a portion of the Gospel of Luke, asking ourselves, who is Jesus? And you'd think uh, people who have been walking with Jesus as long as some of us have would have had that question answered. But you know, every time we read the scriptures, we get a fresh look at who Jesus is and his, what was his mission. And then how does his mission frame our mission? Now, if you were with us last time, you'll remember that Jesus returned to Nazareth on Sabbath to the synagogue where he had grown up. And uh, we have no doubt that the people living in this small, inconsequential village were proud that Mary and Joseph's son had become a rising star among rabbis of Israel. He'd had no formal training, yet this local man was becoming a favorite among Galileans as he explained Torah in a way that everyone could understand. Everyone from town would have been there that day for the Sabbath reading when they handed Jesus the Isaiah scroll. He read a portion of Isaiah 61 as he announced his identity as Messiah and his mission, his true purpose on earth. But as our Cornerstone Fellowship preachers explained last week, what Jesus said that day did not sit well with the hometown crowd. They, they were so enraged by his words that they drove him out of the village and tried to push him off of this cliff. Now, what was it that made them so angry? Well, a couple of things, actually. They thought he had gone too far to claim that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise of a coming leader. They knew Jesus. He had grown up among them. This local boy that they had all known as Joseph's son was claiming to be Israel's one and only Messiah. And contrary to the expectation of what Messiah was going to do, Jesus said that he had not come to lead a military rebellion. He was not going to drive out the Romans or take over Israel or bring vengeance against Israel's Gentile enemies. Quite the opposite. Jesus said that his kingdom come was non-political and non-violent. He would not be raising an army or seizing power or punishing Gentiles. That day, Jesus told them that God didn't only care about the Jews. His Father loved the whole world. But, as we know, Israel had missed that detail, thinking that God was blessing them just because they were special, that God loved them more than he loved other nations, and that Messiah would bring harsh punishment upon anyone who opposed them. But Jesus was interested in other things. Israel's true Messiah was going to do exactly what Isaiah had predicted. He would preach good news to the poor. Which, by the way, stop and think about that. What would be good news to the poor? What is the best news that a poor family could possibly hear? Well, I think that's pretty easy. That Christ had come to provide for them that his message to the haves would be for them to share with the have-nots. And along with bringing some good news to the poor, Jesus was going to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, actual prisoners, but also people bound up in other ways. Think about it. There are a lot of prisons. Addiction is a prison. 
Shame is a prison. Chronic health issues, that's a prison. There are so many things that happen to us in this world that can bind us up and confine us, but Jesus came to set us free, free from evil forces that harass us and free from sickness that causes us great pain and suffering. As part of his role as Messiah, Jesus was planning on healing people, a lot of people, releasing them from how their own bodies and their own minds had failed them. Jesus was going to make them whole. And in doing so, he would be bringing God's grace, God's favor, God's true blessing to them. These are the things that encapsulated his mission. So for the rest of the Gospel of Luke, we will see him doing these things over and over again, which is where we start today, Luke 4.31, right after he said these things in Nazareth. Read with me, verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee. It's about uh, 30 miles from Nazareth. And on the Sabbath, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Now, authority. Now, now, those are two really powerful words in Scripture. Authority means you're speaking the words of God. Uh, amazed means you're shocked because someone is claiming they're speaking the words of God. Uh, they were amazed. Uh, synonyms. They were stunned when they heard Jesus teach. They were, they were gobsmacked at his, his style. Uh, this would be said often in the Gospels about the rabbi Jesus who always spoke with authority as if he was right. And anyone disagreeing with him was wrong. Well, these people simply weren't used to this authoritative style of teaching. Most rabbis of Jesus' day taught in a very tentative, somewhat quiet, meek style, all uh, disguised as humility. Uh, they would offer all the differing, even conflicting opinions on a selected passage without ever taking a stand. They would rarely say uh, which of Israel's teachers they thought was correct on a particular issue. It was said back then that if you wanted to hear two strong opinions about anything, just ask one rabbi. If you wanted to hear three, ask your wife. It was considered prideful to claim that your interpretation of Scripture was anointed by God or that it was anything more than just your opinion. I mean, who were you to claim final authority? But Jesus spoke with that finality and authority that other rabbis lacked, confident that he was telling the truth. Often you would hear him say, all your lives you have been taught that this is what it means. But now I say unto you, this is what it means. And his interpretations were always different than what they had been taught. And this was shocking. Now, for the most part, the lay people loved it. Jesus was a breath of fresh air. Finally, someone was explaining scripture in definitive terms. But many of the experts in Torah were put off by Christ's self-assured, Self-confident style. They saw it as prideful, even blasphemous. Now, what we can see is that Jesus was doing exactly what he had promised he would do. He was proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, telling Jew and Gentile alike that God was not angry with him. 
that God had poured out his grace on this generation by sending his own son to them, that whosoever put faith in him would receive eternal life. What a wonderful message that is, one that we should return to constantly, that we have received that. And not only that, he taught us that the Sabbath was made for man and not the other way around. He taught us to check the motivations of our heart because they can be way more evil than the actual actions that follow. He taught us that God did not give us the right to judge people or to exact vengeance, only to love, even to love our enemies. Well, no one had ever challenged them like this. But Jesus' preaching really was what Isaiah had promised it would be, good news. That was Jesus' mission. And if we're going to be a church on that same mission, we will have to study what Jesus said and did and then live out our best imitation of him. We will be a church compelled by the words and actions of Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Wow. Remember, after the devil failed when he tempted Christ, it said he left the Lord until a more opportune time? Well, he's back. And this time in the form of a demon possessing this poor man who would come to synagogue on Sabbath trying to get some help. But the demon is the only one there who knows Jesus' true identity. This powerful spirit knows that Jesus is more than a rabbi from Nazareth. He is God's son. And this is something that Jesus is keeping on the down low for now. Verse 35, be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. And all the people were amazed, there's that word again, and said to each other, what words are these? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about Jesus spread throughout the surrounding area. Now, back in Nazareth, Jesus had promised that he would be freeing prisoners. Here in Capernaum, that's exactly what he does. This poor man was a prisoner in his own body, a body that had been taken over by an evil spirit. But then Jesus showed up and released him. Now, as we study the Gospels, we see the demons interacting with Jesus again and again, and each time he casts them away. Like in chapter 8, verse 27, when Jesus and his disciples sailed across the lake to the Gerasenes. Let's flip over there and read it. Luke 8, 27, when Jesus had stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. 
When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Hmm. Once again, an evil spirit recognized the Son of God and was obviously terrified to be in his presence. Verse 30, Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down a steep bank into the lake and was drowned. First of all, we have to stop there because some of you might be confused. What are pigs doing in the story? Jewish people don't eat pork. But this side of the lake is Gentile country. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all of the people from the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to, to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. They were afraid of Jesus. The people of the town were afraid of Jesus, which is so crazy. They weren't afraid of the demon-possessed naked man from the graveyard. They were afraid of Jesus. Why? Why were they afraid of Jesus? Well, maybe it was because they had never experienced being near a person with this much spiritual power. They knew that demons existed, but now they're encountering a person who's even more powerful. Maybe they were afraid Jesus would find more demons and, and, and they would lose more livestock. I don't know, but the point is, they asked Jesus to leave, and Jesus obliged. But the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, No, return home and tell everyone how much God has done for you. And that's what the man did. Okay, let's talk for a few minutes about all this, about demons. Are demons active today in the world, or was that just back then? Yes, they're active in the world today. We see it more in countries where they are worshipped, uh, like in the Caribbean countries where the Santeria religion has a, a real grip on people, or in India where thousands of different demonic gods are worshipped, or in Africa where many people are likely to consult a witch doctor. Demonic activity, especially demonic possession, is less prevalent in the West, but we still see it here as well. Our Cornerstone Fellowship members inside the prisons tell us about plenty of demonic activity there. We also see demonic forces active with our epidemic of mental illness in the West. 
A demon can use our clinical depression to their advantage to, to wear us down, to lie to us, to discourage us, even tempt us with suicide. A demon can latch onto our shame and convince us that we are absolutely worthless and always will be. A demon might try to manipulate someone who struggles with bipolar highs and lows. I believe that some demonized people are misdiagnosed by well-meaning but spiritually naive psychiatrists. Maybe that person is not hallucinating. Maybe they don't need more drugs. Maybe they need prayer. Maybe those scary beings they see are real. Ask any of our members who have spent time in lockdown at a psychiatric facility if they felt that some of the other patients were suffering under demonic oppression. And every now and then, a Cornerstone member will call the pastors because unusual things are happening that they feel have a spiritual origin. We meet with them and listen. We pray with them for discernment and pray that they will be released from these tormentors. However, having said that, my experience has been that, for the most part, the enemy's strategy in the West is more nuanced. Satan doesn't have to possess people that he controls in other ways. People addicted to noise, to activity, to busyness, and the constant distraction of screens all day long in their faces, to the point that they have drowned out the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, and it becomes spiritually dull and lethargic. Unaware of all that God is doing around them, their spiritual hunger is dulled by material things and experiences. I mean, if all I think about is making more money or owning more stuff or booking the next expensive vacation, isn't that a way of being driven, uh, being possessed even? I mean, if the devil can get me to sacrifice my family on the altar of climbing a corporate ladder, doesn't he already own me? Friend, if the devil can distract you away from God, he doesn't have to possess you. So, whatever the devil's strategy, obvious or subtle, we are wise to be aware that he exists. He is alive and he seeks to derail us however he can, whenever he can. And as a church compelled by the words and action of Jesus, we should be aware of evil and resist it. Amen? Amen. All right, back to Luke chapter 4. Uh, let's look at verse 38. Uh, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. Okay, let's pause for a minute. Did you see that? Simon Peter has a mother-in-law, meaning what? Come on, it's obvious. Simon is married, as were most of Jesus' disciples. We know very little about Peter's wife. Uh, the only other mention of her is in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, where Paul tells us Peter's wife accompanied her husband on some of his missionary journeys. Simon's mother-in-law was living with him and his wife, and Luke tells us that mom was suffering from a high fever. Now, in the first century, a high fever could result in death. We bring down a fever with acetaminophen, but uh, this wonder drug wasn't even invented until the mid-1950s. Before that, we depended on aspirin, invented in the 1850s. But before that, for thousands of years, since BC days, a fever was reduced by drinking tea 
made from brewing willow bark. No doubt, Simon's wife had been bringing her mom willow bark tea, but to no avail. So look at verse 39, where Jesus, who had said that as part of his mission, he had come to heal, Jesus bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. Oh, I love how Luke writes. I love how this medical doctor says that Jesus rebuked the fever, a word that implies speaking to a fever as if it were a force that had her bound. This is wonderful. Hey, can I ask you a question? Have you ever been involved in a healing? Oh, it's wonderful. It's, it, it, it's, it's fantastic. You never forget it. Uh, one of our family stories is about my dad and how he was healed as a newborn. Uh, born October 20th, 1932, in the very epicenter of the Dust Bowl, uh, Campo, Colorado, where almost every baby born that year developed some sort of breathing problems. From their very first breath as an infant, uh, they were inhaling dust. Soon they would be diagnosed with bronchitis, asthma, pneumonia, tuberculosis. More newborns died in that part of the country in 1932 than lived. There was no escaping the fine dirt that constantly blew through the cracks in the walls in that little house where my, my, my dad was laying in the cradle. Within days of his birth, he had a hacking cough. The doctor had already written him off when a Pentecostal pastor knocked on my grandparents' door. He had heard about this sick little baby boy and wondered if the parents would allow him to pray for healing. That day, that preacher rebuked my dad's illness, and within days, he was healed. And that story became one of the Madsen family legacy stories. Maybe your family has legacy stories too. Miracles that have defined you. Share that story uh, after our Bible study today. Uh, and then if anyone in the group that is talking needs prayer, uh, let's pray for healing. Uh, maybe what happens after we pray for healing will become the latest event in your family's legacy and in Cornerstone Fellowship's legacy as well. All right, Luke goes on in verse uh, 40. So he comes out of uh, Simon's house, where Simon's mother-in-law is now serving everyone. She feels great. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because he knew, they knew he was the Messiah. Hmm. What an amazing day this was. We're starting the synagogue and going from there, Jesus was living out his mission one person at a time. Jesus could have spoken healing over the entire group and then sent them all away whole. But that's not how Jesus is. He took time to touch and heal each person individually. I think this is our model, and I think we can do this too. I mean, I'm, uh, maybe you have tr um, trouble imagining yourself rebuking an illness or praying in a miracle. But you know, you could take time with someone this week who needs to be seen and heard and prayed over. Uh, you could try your hand at rebuking illness and believing for a miracle. Who knows what'll happen? At the very least, 
that sick person will know that you care. Hmm. Well, more about that later. Let's skip down to chapter 5, verse 12, to Jesus healing someone else. Here we go. Uh, While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. This leper shows tremendous faith, doesn't he? This guy suffers from an incurable, contagious skin condition, one that kills nerve cells and disfigures its victims. Now, watch Christ respond in verse 13. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. That is so cool. I mean, how, how does that even play out? Immediately the leprosy left him. Does that mean it just, they were looking at it and just disappeared? Does that mean it, he just, it, the scales just came off? Does that mean his fingers healed up that had been uh, worn down? Does that mean his face healed up? Yeah, I mean, it says the leprosy left him. And did you see what Jesus did, like how he did it? He did something he didn't have to do. What was that? Did you notice it? Right. Jesus touched him. Jesus touched him. Jesus touched a person no one else wanted to touch. A person everyone steered clear of. There was not another rabbi in all of Israel who would have physically touched this guy. And we know from other times Christ healed people. He didn't have to touch him. But he did. Because this was Jesus' mission. See, Jesus was after this guy, body and soul. This man's body was suffering leprosy, but his soul was suffering isolation. He hadn't been touched for years. Jesus lived out his mission by reaching out to touch someone who no one else would touch, by spending time with someone who wasn't necessarily pleasant to look at, to smell, or to be around. And you know, I've never healed someone of leprosy, but I... I think I've reached out to people that maybe someone else was, I don't know, maybe tentative about. I think we could all do that. You know, one of the places in each of our East Bay communities where there are people that are often neglected are the assisted living and skilled nursing facilities for our precious elderly people. Since my dad now lives in one of these places, I've been made aware on my visits of how many of these folks don't ever get a visitor. Just checking in with them makes a world of difference. I think you could volunteer at one of these homes. I think you could get to know some precious folks, veterans, former CEOs, inventors, athletes, just moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas. Their stories are fascinating once you demonstrate your desire to hear them to sit with them, to listen as they open up the treasure box of their memories. And you you learn something from someone older than you and you provide them something invaluable, just your time, as you act like Jesus who sees them too. You know, doing this would take very little talent. It would only take time to reach out to someone neglected. Maybe these precious but sometimes forgotten people can become your mission. 
All right, let's continue on in chapter five. Uh, let's go to verse 15. News about Jesus spread all the more, so crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. <sighs> That's awesome. Keep going. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Now that's fascinating because you would think that it would always be with him, but you know, Jesus didn't always heal people. And that's encouraging to me as well because I've prayed for more people that haven't been healed than people who have been healed. But even Jesus, um, he said he wasn't able to heal in Nazareth because nobody believed. Um, so anyway, I, the Son of God even uh, didn't always heal people, but on this day he's going to. Uh, verse 18, some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. What? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Well, I love how Christ fulfills his mission here. He brings grace and forgiveness to this man while at the same time unlocking the man's paralysis. You know, what's fascinating is as powerful as the story is, we could do that too. Um, we could be like this guy's friends, his community that didn't abandon him when he was paralyzed. They literally carried their friend to Jesus how amazing at that is that, that they had faith for their friend. They didn't perform the miracle, but it wouldn't have happened had they not participated in it. That day, those four men and their friend were a church, a community of faith, a fellowship. And this has become our goal with each of you. We figured out during uh, COVID, as we talked about Cornerstone, that we had allowed too many of you to kind of be spectators observers, uh, while a few of us had all the fun. We said, you should get in a community group, but we didn't, a lot of you didn't do that. And so now uh, we're pressing you to be in community, whether you're meeting with us online or whether you're uh, meeting with us in one of our East Bay gatherings. Um, we're doing everything we can to get you to look into the, each other's eyes and get to know each other, to begin to, to share uh, we just don't believe that you showed up today uh, just wanting to uh, hear some nice music and, you know, hear me talk about the Bible. Well, we believe that you're craving more, especially after we come out of this pandemic. You're craving community, and we want to provide it. So stay around after I'm done talking today and join the conversation. Amen? All right, it's time for you to talk. Let me pray for you first. Father, I bless those that are joined with us today, wherever they are in the world. 
And I pray that they have not felt alone today, but they have felt that they're part of a fellowship, part of a community, because they are. And Lord, as we take it further and open up and share with one another, I pray that we would be willing to um, be known because that is so important and that we would take time to know others and not live in isolation or selfishness. Be with us today, especially those that need a healing because I think that the scriptures today have really been an encouragement for us to ask again, or especially those that feel like they're being tormented by evil forces, for them to know, hey, we believe you. We don't think you're crazy, but we also have a solution. The name of Jesus, the power and authority of Jesus. So Lord, we pray that we would be a help to one another, spiritually, mentally, physically, in Christ's name. Amen.